This week's parsha is Parshas Mishpatim. The Torah tells us in Parak Chaf Aleph, Sukkim Tesvav to Yud Zayin, three consecutive Sukkim. Umake The first pasuk says that if a person hits his father and his mother, he is put to death. That's followed up by a second pasuk, v'gaynev ishu If a person kidnaps another person and then sells that person, ma'is he will die. And finally, the third pasuk says, mekalel Three consecutive tzukim, each giving the death penalty to somebody, the first pasuk is Makya Abavimai, the second pasuk is Gainev Ishumakharai, and the third pasuk is Makalal Abavimai. The question that begs and Rashi makes mention of it is why in between these two psukim of Makya Abavimai and Makalal Abavimai, which seemingly are very, very close together, they're their sisters, hitting and cursing one's parents, they should have been back-to-back, but yet the Torah drives a wedge between these two psukim, pries them apart, and slips in between these two psukim an unusual pasuk that seems not related about a person that goes and kidnaps another person, Why in the world would the Torah go and insert a pasuk about kidnapping in between two psukim about relations or bad relations with one's parents. The Ramban and the Eben Ezra bring from Rav We don't, I don't think, have many, many Yisaitis in Chumash from Rav We have a few, we have a handful. But here is a beautiful vart from Rosadja Gain to give an explanation as to why this Pasuk appears in between the other two. And he says that very often, who is kidnapped? The type of person that's kidnapped is generally very young children. Young children are, they've snatched away at, in their youth, when they're maybe in the cradle, they're taken away, they are brought to another area, and they're raised there, maybe they are enslaved there, they're made to do child labor, and then, as a result of the fact that they were torn away from their homes as young people, they are not able to know who their parents are. And so as they grow up as adults, they might come into contact with what seems to be a stranger, and they might not have a great relationship with that quote-unquote stranger, and they might hit that person, they might curse that person, and unbeknownst to them, that stranger is none other than their father or their mother. And so if a person kidnaps another person, it's a very severe crime, because what you're doing is you're leading potentially to cause a person to curse their mother and their father, to hit their mother and their father, and that's why we exact a very extreme punishment, which is the death penalty. We give a person the death penalty for taking another person hostage, for kidnapping another person, because, as a Sajjagai, this will often lead 
to Mekalel and to Maka of the Iman. I'd like to suggest another possible explanation as to the Shaykhus, the connection between Gainevish Macharai and hitting slash cursing one's mother and one's father. What is the connection between those two heinous crimes against one's parents and taking a person hostage, kidnapping another human being? The relationship that a person has with his parents is very unique. It's much more than just being a biological connection that my parents had me and they, I share their gene pool, their DNA. Obviously, the connection, the relationship of a child with a parent is extremely different. When a person does not have children in life, before a person is married and has children, you don't really look at things in this way, in the way that I'm about to describe it, because we look at our relationship with our parents as being just our relationship from a child to a parent. But once you have children of your own, you begin to see it in a different way, and that is that you see what a child is to you. And it's important when we're children of parents to be able to understand this new dimension, this other dimension of the relationship, not just what, how I'm treating my parents and my parents are treating me, our relationship, but what role do I play for my parents? We're so obsessed with what my parents are doing for me. Are they good parents? Are they bad parents? Are they generous? Are they stingy? Are they... Are they nice to me? Are they mean to me? Are they, uh, uh, am I proud of them? Are they embarrassing to me? That's the way we look at our parents. But we have to look at it from our parents' perspective. What do our parents see us as to them? And the way that a parent views a child is that a, a child is an extension of a parent. Whatever I am in my life, my life is finite. A person lives and he accomplishes and he, he has ups and downs, successes and failures. But ultimately, a parent's eyes are focused intently on their children to further and to improve and to bring pride to whatever I am in life. If a child is a wonderful child and he's successful in life and he accomplishes and he's a good person, he's a genuine person, there's no bigger nachas for a parent because a parent understands that that's a very wonderful reflection on who they are and what they've done with their lives. And of course, the contrary, the opposite is true also, that when a parent looks at a child, and a child is not a good person, a child fails. So then that's viewed as a personal failure in the parent. Chazal tell us, Yevamis, Gimel Amin Aleph, right at the beginning of the Sefes Yevamis, 
The Gemara says, Bra kare tavua. A child is the foot of a parent. Bra, a son, is kare the foot tavua of his father. What does that mean? That a child is a foot of the parent. Why isn't he the head? Why isn't he the hand? Sometimes you use expressions like, he's my right hand man. By a, the Gemara doesn't view a child as a hand. The Gemara doesn't view a child as a heart or a mind or an eye or an ear. It looks at a child as a foot. Why? So a few G'daylam all say the same exact word. The Chazinish, Rebbechon Vassarman and Rav Hutner, they're all Mechavin to the same exact Kavana on that Gemara. And they all say as follows. We know that a person, when he's alive, when you have a heartbeat, when you have a pulse, when you're able to live in this world, you are called a mahalif. You're called somebody that moves. What does that mean, you move? It means that I'm able to accomplish, I'm able to climb, I'm able to grow, I'm able to do and to accomplish great things because I'm alive. You're a mahalif. You're able to go from one madrega to another madrega. You're able to make siyumim amaseftis. You're able to learn and master good midas, good character traits. You're able to do chesed. You're able to do mitzvah, tzedakah. A person is moving. When we're alive, we have the opportunity to move and to grow and to accomplish. When a person dies, at that point, a person changes from a mehalech to what's called an aimeh. You're stuck. You're static. Nothing is moving anymore. It's like when, the, when you're on a computer and all of a sudden the screen freezes and you can't move the mouse, the cursor, everything is just locked into place. You cannot do anything. That's what happens in a spiritual sense when a person dies. He's locked. He can't get unfrozen. He's done. You're an Aymid. Whatever you have at that moment in life, that's what you have forever. What you've accomplished is yours. What you don't accomplish, it's too late. The Vilnadayim says one of the scariest ideas. He says that Gehenim is not our concept of Gehenim. When we grow up and we think of Gehenim, we think of you know, a place that you're thrown in and there's fire and it's very terrible. Yisurim people are screaming. The Vilnadayim says... Maybe, but that's not really even the main part of Gehenim. The main aspect, the main element of Gehenim is the charata, the burning charata that a person has when he's lowered into the grave and he realizes that he blew it. There were so many opportunities that I had to learn and to daven better and to be able to do more tzedakah, give with my money more generously to people that needed it. I should have worn my tzitzis more. I should have worn my tefillin more. I should have... Whatever. I should have gotten a better rule of an esther. All of a sudden, everything is clear to him. How much star there is in Shemayim for all that I did and how much more I could have done. And of course, the Averis that I've done and how that was a rebellion against the Rebbeinah Shalom. Why did I speak Lashnar? Why did I look at that thing? Why did I listen to that thing? Why did I... Why did I go here? Why didn't I go there? All of these become clear at the moment of death. And now you're an Aymid. You can't do anything about it. The Vilna said on the last day of his life, 
he held his tzitzis in his hand, and he says, I, in this world, you're able to buy a pair of tzitzis, you go to, you go to a farm store, you buy a pair of tzitzis for 15, 20 dollars, he says, in the next world, after you die, you can offer a billion dollars, you're not going to get a pair of tzitzis. No farm stores in Shemayim to buy a pair of tzitzis. It's done. Whatever we did in this world, when we were mahalachim, when we were walking, moving people, we accomplished. Once we die, we are aimedim, we stop. The game is over, and they don't even give you an opportunity to put another quarter into the machine. That's it, it's finished. The game is over. You're done. But there's one opportunity in life that could salvage our existence even after we're them that can somehow, some way unfreeze the screen and make us once again able to be active and to accomplish and to get more points in Shamayim. And that is if a person is Zaychet to have a child or many children that are following in their footsteps in the way that I have trained my children, the way that I've been mechanech them, and I give them the right hashkafas, and I give them the right sipuk, and I give them all of the encouragement and the love of serving the Rabbi Shalom, the enthusiasm for Torah, the enthusiasm for mitzvahs, if I was able to change my child and put him in the right direction and set him on a course that's Mala Mala, that's ever growing, that is a reflection on me, and it's taken into account in Shamayim. And it accrues whatever they're doing, all of their davening, all of their learning, all of their tzvachal, all of their tzairah, all of their chesed, all of their mitzvahs accrues to my account even after I'm dead. A child is not the hand, he's not the, the eye, he's the foot of the parent. He enables the parent to continue to be a mahalif. He's an extension of the parent even when the parent is now an aimed. He can't move. The child goes and he continues to walk and as the child walks, the parent walks on his shoulders. A parent is able to take full advantage of the growth of a child. Because after all, he's my child. The Chassan Sefer, the Chassan Sefer with a nun, he was a grandson of the Chassan Sefer, the great Ramesha Sefer. And he used to say every year by the Pesach Seder the following thing. We know that many people have the minute to sit by the Pesach Seder with a kittel, with a white garment like people wear on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And there's a beautiful story, parenthetically, with Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner used to make a Pesach Seder every year with, together with his family, but also Talmidim. Talmidim would be invited. There were many, many Talmidim that would join Rav Hutner for the Pesach Seder every year. And there was a, a Shamus of Rav Hutner. One of the Talmidim served uh, as his like personal person that served him at the Seder, maybe every Shabbos. 
this person, this bacher was a new, new at the job. And he was understandably very nervous, you know, he's supposed to be serving the great Gadol Rav Hutner, and he was nervous. And Rav Hutner was, everything was very perfect, his kitzel was pristine, and the tablecloth was white as snow, and everything was just so. And Rav Hutner was like a, you know, he was a very, very, he was a regal person. And everybody was standing around, and this bacher was brand new at this job, and he was about to pour wine into Rav Hutner's becher for the first of the Dalad Kaisis. And his hand was shaking. And by accident, the, the wine spritzed out of the bottle, and it went all over Rav Hutner's starched white kittel. And the whole room froze. The whole room, like, was so nervous, like, what would happen? Like, Rav Hutner, like, looks down at his kittel, and they didn't know what was going to happen. And the poor Bacha was like dying seven deaths. He was like, you know, he, he felt awful. And Rav Hutner came up with the following famous line. People often quote from him. He says, a kitto without wine stains on it from the Seder is like a machzer, Rashan and Yom Kippur machzer without tears in the machzer, without tear stains in the machzer. Kittel is a very important accessory on Pesach in many homes. And the Hassan Seifer used to look at his children on Seder night and he would say to them, you know why I'm wearing a kittel tonight? This kittel that I'm wearing is the very kittel that I will be buried in. Kittel is a begged mason. Now, when I die, everything is going to stop for me. Unless you continue to follow in my ways. And the reason why I'm wearing a kitto on this night is in order to inspire me to better imbue you with all of the Yisaitas of Emunah and Bitochen, so that you're going to be able to have a life that's long and prosperous. Full of Hashem, Everything comes from tonight, from Seder night. And so this kittel is a reminder to me that when I die, I'm going to need you to help me out, to further my mission in life. Whatever you accomplish is to my credit. And if you don't accomplish, that's also to my deficit. And this is the same you said, a bra is karadavua, a child is an extension, he's the foot, he's the future, he's allowing the parent to continue to walk after he dies. That's what a child is to a parent. Rav Palm used to say that when he was very young, he was sent to a yeshiva in Lithuania, a yeshiva in Slabotka. And he was very young, he was nine, ten years old, I believe, and he he was very homesick. You can imagine a nine-year-old child being sent far away from home and he misses his father, he misses his mother. And he said, once in a while I would get a letter from my father and my father would send me a nice note and he would put some cash in it and I was so happy when I got that letter sent from my father. He says, and sometimes there were other boys that went home to Slabotka and when they came back, my mother 
had sent me a delicious kogel that I relished. I loved my mother's kogel, and when she would send it to me from so far away, it was like the biggest treat in the world. I would warm it up, and it would be mamish ailanaba for me. And Rapam, the rest of his life, used to tell people that when a parent dies and you want to do something nice for him or her, saying Kaddish is a great thing, but that's like a letter. That's like sending a letter with a, like a little nice note in it, and that's very valuable. To a parent in Shemaim, when a, when a child says Kaddish, it, it changes the whole din for them. And it's very valuable. He says, but you want to really send your parent in Shemayim a beautiful present, a kogel? For that you have to learn. You learn Taira, you do mitzvahs, you do something real, not just saying Kaddish. Kaddish is very real also, but a real endeavor. You make a shear for them and you, you, you donate svarim to yeshiva, you give a lot of tzedakah to anim and there. That's like mamish sending them a care package with a kogel in it. This is what a, a parent looks to a child to do for them. Because they understand that a child is their future. Everything that I'm doing in life, all the hard work, how many parents work so hard in order to enable us to go to yeshiva and in order to help us after we get married to pay for the expenses maybe for a few years if they're able to. And very often parents work and work and work so that the, parent, the children can go into a family business or that they, they can leave over Yerusha to them. Sometimes not a monetary Yerusha, but it's a spiritual Yerusha, a good name, a good reputation. But whatever I'm doing, I'm doing for you, says a parent to a child. And it's not only after the parent dies that he needs the child, but he needs the child even in his lifetime. He looks at the child as being a very important facet of who he is, a reflection on what type of midas I have and what I gave over to you. Rav Huntner says a great vart. You have to really have published the sefer to fully appreciate this vart. Let me explain what I mean. When you publish a sefer, there's something very strange that happens. A person puts so much energy and time into writing the Sefer, a lot of creativity, a lot of amelos, a lot of yigiyah, a lot of money. And then you have editors go through the Sefer, and you have type uh, proofreaders go through it, and, and everybody's trying to make sure, and you yourself are going through it a hundred times, trying to make sure that everything that is in that Sefer is perfect. That there are no typos, that the, the captions are just right and the, the svaris are good and, the, and the, you, know, you thanked all the people that you were supposed to thank and you got all their names spelled correctly and the pages are right and the chapters are right and the end notes, everything is right. The foot, you spend, it's impossible for a person to understand. You go to a store, you buy a safer for $10, $20, $50 and you think, okay, you know, that's great. You have no idea how much time, how many man hours went into producing that safer that you just bought for $10. But a lot of times something happens. After it goes to the printer, you get it back and you're all excited as an author to put out a safer and all of a sudden you see that somehow, some way, the Sutton must have gotten onto the 
onto the keyboard at one point be between you giving it to the publisher and it going to the printer, and and there's typos. Things go wrong. There are mistakes all over the place that you thought you went through it so many. How did when did that extra word get in there? How did these two letters become stuck to each other? And how did how did I miss out on you know that there wasn't a caption here or that there was missing a this or or too much of a that? Every safer has that. If you speak to any author, they will all tell you that. I don't know how it happened, but there is something happening. Once I put out the safer, there's tons of mistakes, and sometimes it's you know it's it's a halbitzar if you have a mistake in just a typo that you could live with. But sometimes it's a mistake in halacha. Sometimes I'll never forget. I put out a safer for my when I got married, so I put out a, a bencher. The bencher had chidushim on Zmiris. It was a Zmiris, like I, I was Malake, and I put in my own chidushim on Zmiris Shabbos. And I got it, I got like a proof. Before it goes to the official printer, you get a proof, like a copy to look through, and just make sure that it's okay, and then they'll hit the switch, and they'll, they'll start, you know, pumping out thousands of these books. Sorry. So I was driving home to Long Beach for my uproof. This is like Mamish... My, I got married on Thursday. This was about six days before my chasma. I just got the proof back, and it was just like, I thought for sure it was going to be fine, you know, and I was looking through it, it looked good, and I was driving by every red light and stop sign, I was like going through it because it was like a little bit of a rush, I have to get it to the printer, by, to get it back bound and everything by Thursday. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I slam on the brakes, and I see that, not that I was missing a word, but in benching itself, the whole paragraph of the al was missing. <laughs> oh, with a bracha, the whole thing of al to, to to the bracha of al that whole paragraph was somehow it just like flew out of the computer and it got, you know, I must have looked at that a hundred times and it just, for some reason, the computer just, just like threw it out. I ran, in those days they didn't have cell phones, I ran to a payphone. And I said, literally, you know, on the movies and back in the days, they stopped the presses. That's why I said, stop the presses. There's a missing brush on the thing. And they had to go and retypeset that whole part of the benching. And that's how it happens. Every single time, a per it's very rare that when you put out a safer, it's going to be perfect every single time. It's going to be something is going to be messed up. And it's the Sutton loves doing that. Rav Huntner says... Uh, so one second, when, when is the best day of an author's life? You know, they say that a, a fisherman has two, two, two of the best days of his life, the day that he buys that fishing boat and the day that he gets to sell that fishing boat. That's a, that's a famous line about fishermen. There's two great days of an author's life. When you put out the safer, but then you realize that there's so much Agmas Nevis, look at all these mistakes that are in here. The second best day of an author's life is when that first batch was sold out, and now you get to put out a second edition, a second revised edition. There you get to fix every typo and every caption and every title and every everything that was wrong. You have a list of all the things that were messed up in that first edition, and you get to actually change everything and make sure that it's perfect this time. That is the happiest day of an author's life. And Rav Huntner says that's what a child is. A child is a madura basra of a parent. A parent himself 
you get your life and you get to do what you wanted to do and you have successes and then you have a lot of typos in your life. A lot of things that I wish I could have done different. Many parents live with a lot of regrets, a lot of remorse. I wish I had learned more. I wish I would have been a better person. I wish I would have been more generous. I wish I would have had a better relationship with my wife. I wish I would have had a better relationship with my parents. Whatever it is that a person has, a person lives with successes, but a lot of typos that sort of are constantly on his mind. I wish I would have been able to fix those. And then all of a sudden, this parent, this person has a child. The child, for better or for worse, is viewed, at, viewed as by the parent as being a new opportunity to fix all the mistakes that I made in my life. If I wasn't as big a masmid as I should have been, I could create an environment and sort of explain to my child how you should be a masmid, how you should be a good person, how you should be ethical in business, how you should keep Shabbos and Yantif and do the right things, not speak Lashna, whatever it is that you wish you had changed about yourself, you have that opportunity through a child. A child gives a parent the opportunity to live vicariously. In this world and in the next world, a parent literally is riding piggyback on his child. When we're young, the children are piggyback riding on the parents. But later in life, the parent is literally bound to the child. The parent needs a child. The parent looks at the child as being his dependent. When a child is born, you look at a child as being your dependent. And it's a wonderful thing. And with the IRS, you can deduct every dependent from taxes. It's a, it's a great thing to have a dependent. But then when you get old, you realize that he's not your dependent anymore. You're his dependent. You need him now. You need or her. You need your children to follow in a way and improve on what you did. And a parent is riding on that child. My great-great-grandfather, the Witzburger Rav, has a sefer called Al-Tikri, or Kairib Amis. There's a famous Al-Tikri. It's at the end of Mesechus Brachas, and we say it every Shabbos morning. The Chal Banayich Limude Hashem, the Rav Shalom Banayich. All of your children are limude Hashem. There are people that are learning by Hashem. The Rav Shalom Banayach. Al Tikre Banayach. El Don't read it. Children, sons, but rather builders. Banayach, like binyan. What does that mean? Al Tikre Banayach, El So, the words for Rav says the following. He says, when a parent is zaychet to have a child who goes in the righteous path in life and is learning and is davening and is steiging and is a wonderful human being. That person is building a legacy for me. That child is doing something incredibly important, building. He's a builder of mine. That's how Tikkuri Bani It's not just a son. He's, he's a builder. He's doing major construction, major renovation on who I am, my legacy, in this world and the next world. That's what a child is to a parent. You have to look at it that way. When you look at your parent, you have to look at them as being people that need you, 
Not that you just need them. They need you. They need you. It's not just uh, extra credit if you're a good boy. And if you do the right thing, and that gives them extra number, they could live with it or without. They are desperately riding on your coattails. They need you to be good. And if you're not good, says the Ritzbergerov, if you don't go in that derech that they want you to go, go in, if you're not following the derech of the Torah and the mitzvahs, but you go off that derech, then you're not called Bainayach, but you're called Mehar Sayach. You're called destructors. You're destroying your parents. You're destroying their legacy. You're destroying their dreams. That's what we are to our parents. Our parents look towards us and the roles are reversed. We are their dependent. A parent needs a child to further, to fulfill his vision, his dreams in life. And I believe that that's the pshat, getting back to our original question of why the Torah puts in between two psukim. And right in the middle, taking somebody captive. What does that mean? What does that have to do with, with cursing one's parents? Because when a person, when a child curses his parents, when a child hits his parents, what does that mean? Figuratively, what it means is that I am turning my back on them. I am not following in the derrick that they want me to. I am not giving them the nachas that they so richly deserve. I'm not doing the things that they want. I'm rebellious. I'm cursing what they want from me. I'm turning my back on them. I am destroying what they want. I'm being makyavadi'imai. You know why it's my sumas? You know what the terrible crime you have committed by doing that is? Because what you are to your parents, what your parents are to you, they're captives. They're always captives. Parents are always captives of their children. Because a parent needs a child. A parent depends on a child. And we're captives. If a child, a child is very powerful, he has a lot of leverage against his parents. Because when he does the right thing, then he furthers our mission. And we are gratefully coming along for that ride. But when we don't do what they want, when we embarrass them, when we hurt them, when we pain them, when we grieve them, when we cause them all types of masnefesh, when we keep them up at night because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing for them, that's gainev isha mecharad. What we're doing is we're taking our parents along as captives in whatever we're doing. And we control their destiny through the choices that we make. And the Torah is telling us that as children we have to be very, very careful and very conscious of that role because we have our parents in our control. Whatever our parents are or will not be is primarily riding on the choices and decisions that we make in life. If we're wonderful children, then we are able to sa- save our parents and redeem them. But when we're makarav of imai, when we're makarav of imai, we're gaineh isha makar. We have taken our parents captive. We have bound them, and we have utterly caused them the worst loss 
that they could possibly conceive of. The reverse is true as well. Rav Schwab says a famous word on this pasuk that I saved the best for last. Rav Schwab says, explaining why the Gainedishimachari is between these two psukim, he says a similar word to my word, but the opposite, like a negative. He says as follows Why would a child go and curse his parents? Why would a child go and hit his parents? What would cause a child to do such a violent, heinous act against his own parents? What would, what would bring that to fruition? How would that happen? So if Schwab says, Chazal tells us what would cause that. There's a Gemara that says, There's a period in a child's life that a parent's hand is on the child's neck, which means that a child is under the parent's control. A child is dominated by his parents. And that's the way it should be. If my child asks me for a certain toy, let's say very often when my kids were growing up, they wanted a razor. The... Uh, not, not, not to shave with Baruch Hashem, but to, uh, to, to, uh, to ride like a, what do you call that? A scooter. And, you know, other people in my house thought it was a great idea, and all the kids on the block had it, it was a great idea. Every time I thought of that razor, I thought of my child, Rahman Otsan, taking that razor, going into the street in a car with Hasra Shalom, do damage. And I said to my I don't think that it's a safe thing. I don't like my kids going ice skating. To me, it's like, uh, I just picture a terrible thing happening. Right now, you're going to look at me like I'm a nut. And that, you know, maybe I, my parent license should be revoked. But this is, I am, I'm not crazy about everything. There are certain things I give my kids a lot of independence with. But there are certain things that I just have visions of something bad happening. And, I, and I'm, I, I'm very tough about that. And that's the way a parent very often should be. It's not a hefker belt. When the child gets older, they can make their own decisions and... And they could do what, they're, what they want. But when they're under my roof, then they have to understand this is what I expect of them. And I, this is what I allow, and this is what I don't allow. Until a certain age, you have the right and perhaps the responsibility to, and the obligation to control what your child does. Your child doesn't know better. A parent has to tell his child every day to brush his teeth or her teeth. Why isn't that, uh, that that's, that's, that's mean? Because a child on it, left to their own volition, they won't do it. So you know what cavities are, you know what, what could happen with tooth. So you have to, you have to, you're, when your child is young, you have to tell them right from wrong. You have to tell them where they can go, where they can't go, remind them to brush their teeth, remind them to put their, uh, whatever, whatever they need to do, you have to be the one to tell them, and you have to tell them to eat healthy, and you have to tell them to... Oh, whatever a child needs, that's what a parent has to do. But there comes an age, says Chazal, and there's Machlechus in the Gemara, whether it's after 22 or after 24, there comes an age in a person's life that the parent no longer should be meddling in a, in a child's affairs. A child is now old enough, he's independent, he has the right to make decisions. He has the right to decide who he can marry. 
He has the right to decide where he can live, what type of profession he should go into. These are things that a child is allowed and should be making at a certain point in his life. Once his parents have given him the background and the training and all the guidance and the love, at one point you have to let the bird fly. You can't hold on to that bird forever. But let's say a parent can't let go of that bird. And the parent can't allow that child to fly freely. And a a child is constantly being told by a parent long after that age is up. People are 25, people are 30, people are 35, 40, and they still very often have parents that are telling them exactly what to do and what you shouldn't be doing, giving them constant criticism. That's an extremely unhealthy way to raise a child. That's inappropriate, says Chazal. Dr. Schwab says, you know what causes a child to begin to rebel in a violent, inappropriate manner to a parent? You know what causes makah avaviimai? You know what causes makah avaviimai? It's when a parent continues to have too much say in a child's life after the age of proper growth and development, and I'm still on top of your case. And I'm still constantly telling you right from wrong. And I'm not allowing you to breathe. I'm not giving you any ability to thrive and to grow and to soar on your own. At that point, when you're gaimei vishu mecharei, you take your child hostage. You don't allow him freedom. He's your slave. He's your indentured servant forever. You're constantly on top of him. You're constantly imprisoning him in your own world, in your own life, and you don't allow him to move on and to grow and to be on his own, that, says of Schwab, is what causes a child needs to be at one point let go of. And he's not going to turn his back on you. He's going to love you still. But he needs to grow. There are many parents that meddle in a child's affairs after they get married. We know all the mother-in-law jokes. And they're, you know, they're not telling jokes about uh, grandparents. Mother-in-laws, for some reason, are kind of shameless. Why? Because there's some truth to it. Not, you know, current, present company excluded, of course. But many mother-in-laws, they, they I Baruch Hashem, glad they have a very good mother-in-law. She doesn't do this. But many people's mother-in-laws are completely overbearing. And they will constantly, you know, criticize a son-in-law, a daughter, how can you do this? Why are you raising your kids this way? Why are you moving there? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? None of your business. If your child is old enough to get married, your child should be allowed to make decisions on their own. That doesn't mean to say that if they ask you for advice, that you should, you know, say, uh, uh, you know, no comment. If they're asking your advice, you should offer your advice. But you shouldn't meddle in their affairs. You shouldn't become overly bearing upon them and insist that they do this and they don't do that. It's, they're, they're married. I'll never forget there was a, I was once on a, on a, on an El flight going to Israel and there was a new chassan and kala freshly minted chassan and kala on the plane. And, and I, knew, I knew both of them 
but not not well enough. I wasn't invited to the chasna, but I knew I knew who both of them were, and and I they came on late onto the plane, and they were they were going to itself for a year or two after they got married to learn, and you know they understandably had a lot of luggage and tech to bring upon the plane, and they came late to the airport on top of it, so they had to bring onto the plane itself like a one of those huge duffel bags, and. The plane was already fully loaded. Every single compartment head was already shut. There was not a single inch. And here they were with this huge piano that they were bringing to Israel or something. And and it was a big. It was like a crisis for them, understandably. And the the husband was like trying to deal with it. And the Kala, this new Kala, maybe they're married a couple of weeks. She picks up the phone, her cell phone, and she starts calling her mommy. You know, I said, Mommy, this is what's happening. We're on the plane. I don't know what to do. And the husband, I'll never forget this, just this stupid thing stay in your mind. But the husband you know, looks at this new cow and he says, What are you calling your mother for in front of the whole plane? What are you calling your mother for? I can handle this. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm big enough, I'm a big boy now. I can handle this on my own. I don't need your mommy. And that's the way it is. Sometimes parents. This is actually the girl calling the mother, so maybe it's not a perfect example, but, but parents sometimes can be very, very hyper-involved with their children, and it's, it's to a fault, and to a huge fault. You have to let your children, at one point, be on their own. You have to cut that umbilical cord and let them thrive, and let them grow, and let them even make mistakes sometimes. But that's what you have to do. You can offer your advice in the nicest way possible, but you cannot impose on children after a certain point in their life. It's critical parenting 101. And Rav says that when a child is Mikalo and Maka his parents, it's a direct result of being in violation of this Chazal, of a Gainev, Isha, Makarev, and Nimtza, the other, yes, a Mikalo and a Maka is also Chayev Misa. It's a terrible crime. You should never curse your parents regardless. But the reason for being, for this happening, the Torah is telling us between the lines, literally, you know why a person could come potentially to be Mikhail's parents and to be Makah's parents? Because you were Gainid Ishimachar. Because you took them hostage. You didn't allow them to grow. You didn't allow them to thrive. You stunted their growth by making them into children when they were really adults. Yes, until a certain time in life, you have to control your child. The Yada al-Savare Beneath, there is a period of time that you have to guide your children. And you have to tell them, I don't want you to go ice skating, I don't want you to go skiing, and I want you to do this better, and I want you to do that different. That's what a parent is supposed to be. But there comes a point that you have to say to yourself, Ad Khan B'Shabbos It's enough. He's now, or she's now, a grown, mature person, and I have to let them go. And if you don't let them go, there will be dire consequences in the relationship. What we should take from today is that parents and children are a very complex relationship. There is no more complicated relationship in the world than the relationship that exists between a parent and a child. Everything else is fairly simple, a Rebbe and a Talmud, it's nothing but nachas, it's nothing but joy. You come 
you give a shear, you have a tish together, you have a perm together, you have a mesiba together, you dance and you learn and you sing and you rejoice, you go to each other's simchas. It's a beautiful relationship. Yes, there are times that it's that there are issues that come up and you try your best to help out your Talmidim, but on the whole it's a it's a fairly simple, uncomplicated relationship. Parents and children are super complex. Sometimes people are zaychet have a wonderful relationship with their parents and their parents with them. That's Ailam Haba for everybody. But very often there are parents that don't see eye to eye with their children. Children don't see eye to eye with their parents. Different ashtafas, different set of values, different personalities. And what we're learning from today's Shemuz is that parents and children need to figure out a way to come together. Because each one of us needs the other. We're dependent on one another. A child needs a parent to help them grow, to raise them, to feed them, to support them emotionally, physically, monetarily, lovingly. A parent plays a super important role in their child's development up until a certain point, and then they have to see to it that they allow their child now to take over. And a child taking over at that point is when a parent becomes dependent on them. I need you. I can't fight with you. I can't disagree with you. I can't tangle with you. I can't rumble with you. I can't wrestle with you. I need you. I need you to continue what I'm teaching you. I need you to perpetuate the good name of our family. I need you in this world, and I need you in the next world. As much as a parent gives to a child, a child gives back to a parent, or must give back to a parent. We're interdependent. You can't divorce a child, and you can't divorce your parents. You have to figure out whatever way it takes, as difficult as it may be. It's sometimes it's the most difficult thing in the world to build that bridge, to be able to be one with your parent. But it's vitally vital. It's critical that such a bridge be built under all circumstances. I don't care what the situation is. Yeah, but you don't know my parents. My parents are this, my parents are that. Perhaps with very slim exceptions, we have to work on building better relationship with our parents. And for their part, parents have to build better relationship with their children. There's a beautiful medrash in Parshas Ba'aleischot. The medrash says, Amra HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Klal Yisrael, Nerchem biyadi. Your flame is in my hands. V'neiri and my flame is in your hands. If you protect my candle, my flame, I'll protect yours. What does that mean? HaKadosh Baruch has in his hands, our flame. The flame, the life that we have is only because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us that life. He allows the candle, the flame, to be a flame. 
That's how Kaddish Baruch Hu telling us, I have something that you need. I'm holding your candle. I'm allowing your candle to burn. But you know something I'll admit to you, that my candle is in your hands. HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs us as Klal Yisrael, as Amma Nifchar, to perpetuate his mission in life. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, If you take care of my Torah and my mitzvahs, you act ethically and honestly, and you're a Kiddush Hashem, I will protect you. But if you don't, then all bets are off. And I think that that is a perfect symbolism for the relationship between a parent and a child. A parent looks at a child and says, I'm in control of you. I hold the purse strings. I give you an allowance. I've raised you. I give you a roof over your head. I give you food. I give you spending money. I give you love. I give you affection. But you should know it doesn't end there. It's not a one-way street. Because my candle, my reputation, my neshama, Everything that I need, that I'm living for, is biyedchem. I've been trusting it to you. You're supposed to take my legacy and carry it on ladar dairis. Parents and children need one another. They're bound to one another. When we do this well, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And Rahman when we fail, when a parent fails a child or when a child fails a parent, it's Gainiv Ish Umakhari. It's a hostage situation. You either take your parent hostage, the parent takes the child hostage, but whatever way you slice it, it's the worst thing in the world. And it has to be remedied. The last of the Navuas in Sefer Malachi at the end speaks to this relationship and the importance of the reciprocity of the love between a parent and a child. I'm sending you, Eliyah Nabi. I'm going to bring you the Geula. And at that point, the times of the Geula are times that are going to be marked by an amazing phenomenon of a Heshev Leivaves Albonim HaKadosh will reunite a parent together with a child, the child of the parent. They will embrace one another. They will understand one another. They will make efforts to do outreach to one another. This is one of the most important challenges of our lives. As children, and the Mirza Hashem someday when you're going to be parents, it's easy, so easy to destroy a parent-child relationship. Because there's so much psychology behind the relationship, because there's so much history, and sometimes bad blood, and misunderstandings that exist between parents and children, but the most important thing one of the most important things that we could do in our life is to repair that relationship and to make sure that we reach out to our parents, call them before Shabbos and wish them good Shabbos and then say, I love you. Not just Mother's Day and Father's Day, that too. 
But every single every Arab Shabbos, every day when you have a chance, call them. Build bridges. Build the relationship. Because that is such a major thing. And when your children see that you're close with your, with your parents, they will follow that. They will echo that. And they will be close with you. That's the way the world works. What goes around comes around. If we're not nice to our parents, our children will very often be not nice to us because that's what they see the parent-child relationship is. There are so many dividends that we can gain from building the relationship up and trying to scrape away all of the bad, the histories, the memories that we've, we've allowed to collect and to corrode the relationship to build the relationship, to beautify the relationship, to make stronger the relationship, to embrace one's parents, to mechabe them, and to do it in the living years. To send them the kugel and the letter is not lachem That's one thing, but it's much better to send the kugels to chayehim. That's our job in life. One of the Aseris Hadibris is one of the most crucial, fundamental elements of our religion is to work on that relationship with our parents, to respect them, and Mitzvah Shem, hopefully, to build it up to the time that we will be Zaychet to the Gula Shlema, when the Heshev Leivavis Havanim, Leivanim Have a good chance.